Thank you, iTunes. Uh, Sorry, we normally thank the pianist who is not here tonight in God's good providence. So we will thank somebody. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10. Lord willing, we will be wrapping up this section of text in 1 Corinthians 10, which may be a relief to some of you since this is the fifth sermon from verses 1 through 13. But I hope they have been fruitful for you. I have intentionally slowed down during this section, wanting to understand how Paul reads his Old Testament and exactly what he is exhorting the Corinthian believers to do. And specifically tonight, we'll be looking at verse 13 at the nature of temptation. How Paul encourages the believers in Corinth to endure temptation. We will see several truths about God that encourage us as we fight. But it will also be useful for us to note how Satan might pervert and twist those truths about God in order to entice us to sin. There is a wonderful book written by Thomas Brooks called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, which is a an old book that looks at the tactics that Satan uses to try and trip up believers. We have it in our theological library, and I hope that you would check that out and read it at some point. It is very good, and much of what he says is going to kind of overflow into my sermon tonight, looking at how Satan works to twist and to entice and to lure us into sin. But before we get to that, let's read our text, 1 Corinthians 10. I'm going to start in verse 1. Hear the word of our Lord for us tonight. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our our fathers were all under the cloud, and all of them passed through the sea, and all of them were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all of them ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the, the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Father, your word is profitable. It is good for encouragement, 
for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, and we pray that this profitability would overflow among us tonight. That you would encourage, that you would correct, that you would train in righteousness, and that you would do all this for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. By way of review, we've been making our way through this letter, and we've slowed down to look at this portion of 1 Corinthians 10, and as I've said previously, we can remember the three E's as a way to outline this text. Verses 1 through 5, we had the Old Testament experiences. These were the experiences that Paul used from the Old Testament to illustrate theological truth. Experiences like the Exodus, the cloud, the pillar of fire, the drinking of water from the rock that was struck, all of which pointed forward to Christ. And then in verses 6 through 11, we saw the examples. These were the stories from the Hebrew fathers of examples of sin to avoid, sinful desire, idolatry. We looked at the the making of the golden calf. We looked at the raising of the bronze serpent. These were illustrations, examples of sins that we must avoid even today. And in verses 12 through 14, we see the final exhortations to flee from sin and to endure even in the midst of temptation. Specifically, last week, we looked at the exhortation in verse 12, take heed lest you fall. That sermon is really a a, a good complement to this sermon. Be watchful, heads up, be on guard. Don't take your eye off the ball, lest when you think you're safe, you then trip and fall. And that's because, biblically speaking, self-confidence always precedes humiliation. Now tonight, we move on to verse 13 and see our next exhortation, which we might summarize in this way. Battle temptation with truth. Battle temptation with truth. Well, what truth is that? We can look at verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. In these verses, I see five different truths that we can use to help in the battle of temptation. Five Truths that God gives to us, they're tools in our tool belt in the spiritual war that takes place against sin and temptation in our lives. And not insignificantly, I'll note as we go through these five truths, five corresponding lies that Satan tries to use against us. That cunning serpent contorts and twists and lies to us. He seeks to devour us as we looked at last week. And so these truths in this verse are helpful as we battle against the lies of Satan. But before we get into these five truths and the five corresponding lies, I'd like to first frame our study with a brief word about what the Bible teaches about temptation. Some of you, having read the Bible, may have found a sort of tension in your mind as if the Bible is almost contradictory when it talks about temptation. For example, the Bible would have us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, Father, lead us not into temptation. It's Matthew 6.13. And later in the book of James, we read, 
from James, let no one say when he's tempted that I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, James 1.13. So Jesus tells us to pray, Father, lead me not into temptation, and James says that God can't tempt anyone. Well, which is it? Seems like a contradiction. Why would we pray that God would not tempt us when God cannot tempt us? Well, here's how we can reconcile these things in our mind. The Bible speaks of temptation in two different ways. We might say in two different angles or from two sides of a coin. That is temptation and testing or trials. Temptation and testing. Testing is what our Heavenly Father sovereignly does to us for our good. He brings about trials. He brings about suffering. He puts our three Jewish brothers in the fiery furnace to refine our faith. You think about verses like James 1, 2, and 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kind, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And when steadfastness has its full effect, you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And so James says that we can be joyful, we can rejoice when trials come because it's testing our faith and because that trial will prove to be the occasion for our growth, for our maturation, for our being made complete. That's what God does. He uses trials as the events that wean us from the love of this world back to a love for Him. And in His goodness, in His love for us, He is faithful to test us, to refine us. This, this week alone, I think I had three or four different unrelated conversations with different people that revolved around this specific point. And it was encouraging to remark how God's wisdom was played out in these specific trials. Talking to these different people at different times, we all came to see that God knew exactly the way that a person needed to grow and allowed a trial to be sent to test that particular area. Maybe somebody needed to grow in patience. And so God sends them a trial that tested their patience. Maybe someone needed to grow in humility, and so God sent them a trial to humble them. Maybe someone was weak in contentment, and so God sends them a trial that tests their faith and their satisfaction. That's what God does to each of us. He knows us, and He loves us enough to act like a surgeon cutting away very carefully the weak, bad parts and bandaging the wounds that we might heal and thrive. Or maybe he's like a skilled gardener, we could say. He uses trials to expose and uproot the weeds of sin and replace them with the nourishing soil of faith. That's what God does. But what about temptation? Where does that come in? If God tests and He brings trials... What is temptation? Well, that's often the correlating reality that follows us through the trials. Temptation is the enticement, the, the luring into sin. 
to pull and to draw into unrighteousness, usually instigated by Satan or his demons or other sinners in the world. And this, the enticement into sin, does not come from God. God is not tempted, nor does He entice others into sin, which would be evil. God is not evil. But in His power, He can sovereignly permit trials, which then become the occasion for Satan to tempt and entice us to sin. Think of Job. God permitted the trial of Job. He permitted Satan to entice him to sin, but God never himself enticed. That's the devil's work. And so to bring us back to Matthew 6, when we pray, Father, lead me not into temptation, I've heard it said, and I think it's pretty right, that we're praying something like, Father, stop us before Satan can turn your test into a temptation. Stop me before Satan can turn this test into an enticement to sin. We could step back and use the imagery of Proverbs. Father, lead me not into temptation. Keep my feet so far from the path of Lady Folly's house that I cannot even hear her voice when she calls out to me. Protect me from the enticements of Satan. I think that's important for us to frame in our mind, but I think that's enough about testing and temptation. They will be used throughout this sermon in similar complementary ways. But let's get back to 1 Corinthians 10 and look at these five truths that I had promised to you. Five truths to help battle temptation and also five corresponding lies that Satan uses to tempt you to sin. First truth, you're not alone. You are not alone. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. You're not the only person to deal with X. You're not unique. You're not special in this regard. Everybody deals with this in one form or another. Or to say it another way, the trials of common Christians are simply common trials. And that's a comforting truth, not simply because misery loves company, as if me knowing that somebody else is in pain somehow makes my suffering more palatable. No, it's comforting because one of the plots of Satan is to make you think that you really are special. Boy, you are a special kind of sinner. That's the correlating lie with this truth. If the truth is you're not alone, Satan lies to you and says the opposite. You're alone. You're special. You're different. You are uniquely wicked. You have a special kind of dirty shame. You have a peculiar kind of sin, and your temptation uniquely disqualifies you from grace. You're such an awful sinner that not even Jesus is enough to save you. That's what Satan would have you think. And he works that lie into our mind in such a way that we begin to really doubt that Jesus can actually save me. Maybe I am worse than everybody else. My sin really is darker than all the other people at church. And he uses this lie to pull our eyes off of the Jesus 
that has saved us and fixate our eyes on our sin, on ourselves. Have you felt this way? Felt that because of the sinfulness of your past, because of your foolish decisions, because of your dark secrets, that you really are a special category of sinner, perhaps even out of reach of Jesus' mercy. When you are tempted, don't let Satan put this lie in your mind. If you're caught up in such a thought, remember this exhortation here. No temptation has come upon you that isn't common to all men. Everybody struggles with this. With contentment, with self-control, with humility, with purity, with battling for holiness. All of us are sinners, and that means that all of us then are prime candidates for God's grace of forgiveness. Satan sitting in your ear telling you that you're a terrible sinner isn't the ultimate problem. He's actually telling you the truth in that moment. You're a sinner. The problem comes in when he leads you, he entices you to think that your particular kind of sin is somehow indelible and unable to be washed away by Jesus. That's the problem. Jesus died for sinners, for wicked people, for dark people, for depraved souls, for people like me and people like you. And so don't let Satan let you forget that. You are not alone. Jesus died for sinners like you. Second truth to help us battle against temptation. God is faithful. God is faithful. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. Each trial, each temptation, each test usually reveals within us some measure of failure on our part. We give in just a little. We take that second lingering glance at the forbidden thing. We let our thoughts linger where they shouldn't be, prompting discontentment within us. We, We let our godly lament slide into sinful complaining. We lose control and let our righteous anger bleed into vengeful wrath. Whatever it is, the testing usually reveals cracks, which is what God intended to happen. The refining fire does just that. It refines, and it does so by revealing remaining impurities. It reveals cracks in the clay. And when it happens, when those cracks are exposed, we are tempted in unique ways. We can turn our eyes to our own remaining sins. We get depressed. We feel ashamed. We ask ourselves, how could I do that again? I thought I was better than this. I thought I had made progress in this area. I shouldn't be doing these things by now. I can't believe I was unfaithful in this way again. And Satan comes in, and he whispers in your ear, you're right. You were awfully unfaithful. You are so wicked. You should be better than this. You should feel ashamed of your faithlessness. You should feel 
awful that a person of your learning, your stature, your presumed maturity fell for something so petty. You're helpless. And God's forgotten about you. And so give in. That's the bait. That's the moment of temptation. And in those moments, we have to remember these words from Paul. That God is faithful. Even when your faith fails, God is faithful. God keeps His covenant even when we do not. He's declared you to be righteous, not on the basis of your faithfulness, but on the basis of Christ's faithfulness. And because Christ Himself was faithful, we have been forgiven, we've been justified, we've been adopted into the household of God. And so in your moments of temptation, don't listen to the lies of Satan that tempts you to fixate on your failure. Move on to fixating on Jesus. Focus your mind, focus your heart on the faithfulness of Christ. God is faithful. Third truth, to encourage you in your moments of temptation. God won't crush you. God won't crush you. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. That's an encouragement to us. It means that God in His sovereignty is not going to let Satan have free reign over you. You're not at the mercy of Satan, and no single temptation will be enough to do you in. And why is that? Is it because you are so strong? Is it because we are so smart? No, it's not because of our innate ability to resist any and all temptation. In fact, any temptation of whatever strength may be enough to undo us if we're standing in our own strength. No, the power to overcome temptations comes from the God who is faithful. The Lord is the sure guardian of His people. And under whose care we have no cause to fear, provided we are depending entirely upon His strength. He will help us because He is faithful. And He helps us in two ways. First and foremost, He supplies the necessary strength for the trial. When we stand in the power of His might, we will endure. When we enter the spiritual battle, standing in the power of Christ, raging war against or according to His instruction, prayerfully and humbly keeping our eyes on Him, then we are furnished with all the necessary strength to persevere. But God also helps us by limiting, setting the limits of the temptation. Just like Job's situation, Satan's leash in any temptation is held in the hands of our sovereign God. He can only go so far as God lets him and not one step further. That's good news. Every temptation is meant by Satan to undo us, and yet God means it for our good. Our loving Father isn't seeking to crush us. He isn't seeking to punish us. He isn't seeking vengeance upon us. God is not pouring out His wrath upon you for your past 
sins. All of that was appeased on the cross. Jesus is our propitiation, Scripture says. That is, He's the appeasing sacrifice that was offered to assuage the just and holy wrath of God for sin. And so if you're trusting in Christ, any trial, any temptation that comes is not coming because God is angry at you. That was handled on the cross. Any test, any trial that comes upon you comes with a divine stamp of approval which says from God, I love you and this is for your good. God uses trials to make us more like Jesus, not to punish us for past sins. He arranges them for our growth, not because He's mad at us. He's seeking to cure us of a disease, not to crush us for disobedience. Which is the opposite of what Satan wants us to think. Satan's lie is that he wants us to think long and hard about our sinfulness and to think that God really does hate us. That God does not love you. That's what he did to Adam. If God really loved you, Adam, then he'd have let you have some of that fruit and you'd be just like him. But he didn't give you that fruit, so he must not like you. And that's the lie. That God doesn't love you. We must remember that God is not using these trials... And the accompanying temptations of Satan as punishment. In God's hands, these trials become restorative, not punitive. They cure rather than crush. And that's because He supplies us with the necessary strength to endure, and He limits the scope of these trials so that we may not be tempted beyond our ability. It's similar to the song we just sang. He, he holds us up in the midst of the storm. Christ, our sure and steady anchor. And He controls the winds of the storm so that our sails will not snap. And He does it all so that we would become better sailors, more confident and trusting in Him. You don't become a better sailor by sitting on a sailboat in calm seas with no wind and sunny skies. You become a better sailor by experience sailing through tough storms. And the storms that God sends to us are for our good, not to crush us. Fourth, fourth truth to encourage us about temptation. God provides a way out. God provides a way out. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation will also provide the way of escape. And so in every trial, in every temptation, God is faithful to leave us an escape route. And it seems so simple. It seems so elementary. But we so forget it in the moment of temptation. Satan's lie is that he wants us to believe that our sinning, our falling, our indulgence is inevitable. He wants us to believe that succumbing to the temptation is inevitable, that there's no escape, it's unavoidable. You're a sinner and you've sinned this way a thousand times before and you're going to do it again. 
There's no way out. You're enslaved. You've got no strength to win. Resistance is futile. You're hopeless. And so give in. There's the bait. But Paul reminds us that God is faithful. And when he leads us into a trial, he also provides a path of escape. Sometimes it's an open door. Think about Joseph and Potiphar's wife. God could have left the door locked, shut, and Joseph been trapped in the room. But instead, the door was open and Joseph was able to flee. Sometimes the way of escape is bringing a passage of Scripture to mind. Like when Jesus rebuffed Satan, recalling Scripture, telling Satan to be gone. Which is another reason why we need to plant God's Word deep, deep in our hearts so that we can recall it in the moment of temptation and use it as an escape to the enticements of sin. Sometimes the way of escape that God provides you is simply a word of encouragement from a brother or sister in Christ. Maybe an unprompted phone call or a text or an unsolicited prayer or a word of encouragement that God lays on the heart of a brother or sister which comes to you right when you're feeling the weakest, right when you're ready to give in, to succumb to the trial. And God's encouragement comes through the lips of another saint like manna from heaven and sustains us. Maybe you've experienced that. Right when you're about to give in, right when you feel like you're going to go under, you can't tread water anymore, somebody gives you a word of encouragement, it's like a drink of water in the middle of the desert. It brings you back from the edge. It grants you a moment of perspective, a moment of clarity. It recenters your mind on the things of God. I hope you've experienced that. It's one of the reasons why the ministry, the service of encouragement is so vital in the church. We can be tempted to act as if we're just brains full of doctrine floating around, and we're not souls with feelings and need of encouragement. When the Holy Spirit prompts your heart to reach out, to say something, to encourage someone, that might be the Holy Spirit leading you to provide a way of escape for another believer in the midst of temptation. So don't neglect the Spirit's leading. If He's leading you to encourage another saint, we need each other. We need to be picked up when we're down. We need to have help to carry our burdens. And sometimes the godliest thing that you can do for another believer is to tell them stuff they already know. Because in the midst of a trial and a temptation, we don't need big, huge chunks of steak necessarily. We need little bits of truth to remind us of what is true. If you're stumbling through a trial, you need to know God loves you. He hasn't forgotten about you. God is not your enemy. God's working for your good. You've been set free from sin. You're, you're not enslaved anymore. Your sinning is not an inevitability. 
don't give up. Christ will hold you to the end. Don't give up. That leads to our fifth encouragement in the end of this verse. God will sustain you. God will sustain you. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide a way of escape that you may, able, may be able to endure it. That you may be able to endure it. God is faithful. He will limit the temptation. He'll provide a way of escape. And He'll do it all so that you may endure That you may be sustained. That you may persevere. Satan's lie is that you're never going to make it. You're doomed. You are not strong enough. You're not man enough for this. You're not woman enough to hang on. Your succumbing is inevitable because you don't have what it takes. And as we've said, in our own strength, he's right. We don't have what it takes. We will fail. We will falter. But God is faithful. And he will help us endure to the end. When you're feeling tempted and you fear that your faith is going to fail, remember Jesus. The tempted one who resisted the best that Satan could throw at him. Jesus was tempted without limit to the max, and Satan couldn't do it. He was enticed, but he never took the bait. He was lured by the evil one, but he never yielded. And so he is our sympathetic high priest. He was tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. And what that means is that He is a fitting sacrifice to stand in our place. And if He was willing to be tempted and to suffer in your place to earn your salvation, will He not also give to you what you need right now in your moments of trial? Of course He will. God is faithful, as we've already read. He's not going to start a work in you only to fumble you halfway to the goal line. He's not going to begin something well in you and then leave you stranded in the midst of a trial. He will carry you. Remember what we studied earlier, chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus will sustain you guiltless to the end. Remember the words we sang just a few minutes ago. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. My love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Oh, my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. We need sweet truth to carry us through these bitter moments of temptation and trial. Christ is faithful to hold us to the end. And one of the ways that He holds us is His ongoing means of grace. He gives us the church other tokens of His enduring grace. And one of those is His body and His blood broken for us. Pictured at the Lord's table. 
When we are tempted and tried in this life, we need to look at the picture of provision that he leaves for us at the table. Remember what he has done for us. Remember the sacrifice which demonstrates for us the depth of his love. Trust in this Jesus and be forgiven of all of your failings. And if you are forgiven, if you've been baptized, then we we encourage you to join us at the table and have your hearts filled again by faith. If you're like the saints of Acts chapter 2, devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread, then join us in this celebration of the Lord's table. God is faithful, and His faithfulness is both pictured here in the elements of His body and His blood broken for us, and also His faithfulness is proclaimed by us as we partake of this meal until our Lord returns. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would bless the Lord's table, that you would use it to help your church persevere. Help us in the midst of temptation. Build us up. Strengthen us for the day of the trial, whether it's here or just on the horizon. And do all of this for your name. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Table servants, please come.